Hi, I'm Laura. And I'm Shelly. And together we co-host a podcast called Crime Scene Queens, which goes beyond the who, what, when, where, and why of true crime. We are forensic professionals here to cure you of that CSI effect. Expect unfiltered, fact-based banters about true stories from the field as we catch up and discuss autopsies, fingerprints, blood spatter, degloving, adipocere, and more terms you may or may not be familiar with. So follow us Crime Scene Queens on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Marbling. Trajectory. How to properly cut down a hangman's noose. Trace evidence. <laughs> You're so vanilla after mine. <laughs> Trace evidence. Cyanoacrylate fuming. AKA super glue fuming. I know, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and thank you for listening to From the Vault, a true crime podcast, right here on Anchor and wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm Jason Futch. This is part two of the Cheryl Kachigan case that Nick and I covered last week, along with her nephew, Stephen Kachigan. In this episode, we go into a little more detail about Cheryl's case, including possible persons of interest and where investigators with the Highland County Sheriff's Office are at with the investigation. We again want to thank Stephen for joining us on this episode of From the Vault. We also want to thank Sergeant Roger St. Laurent and Lieutenant Brian Kramer of the Highlands County Sheriff's Office for giving us the time to learn more about the details in this otherwise obscure case. We encourage our listeners to share this episode and the previous episode on this case so more people can learn about Cheryl. The more discussions that we have about Cheryl and other cases that we cover, the better because a lot more people out there can learn about these cases because there might be a hidden skeleton in the closet that might want to come out eventually. So that's why we encourage our listeners to keep sharing these episodes as they come out. So with that being said, I want to go ahead and present to you the conclusion to the Cheryl Katchigan episode. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Steve, uh, can you kind of go into what the family was thinking? How did they find out about Cheryl's passing? Because I know we were mentioning she was kind of estranged with the family, but when your father got the phone call that Cheryl had passed away, kind of bring us into that. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, Again, I was probably around 10 years old when this happened, and so um, you know, what I know is, is from what I recall then. And I do remember he, he was called, uh, on the phone, either he or my mother. And I believe it was a local detective with our sheriff's office who made the death notification by phone from Highlands County. They were asked to, to make that notification. And that's something that, that we do as well, even today, you know, another agency, you know, says, Hey, we need a death notification for next of kin and can y'all do that and that's something that uh, we sometimes do as well when we get asked so nothing out of the ordinary there i do remember there was an event at our church that evening that my grandfather uh, my mom's dad was taking me to so i do remember knowing about it and i believe my mother may have have told me that something had happened to aunt cheryl Uh, again probably did not 
know all the details at that point, but I do remember my grandfather coming and picking me up, going to this event at the church and then coming home. Even though my father and, and my aunt may not have been close, uh, obviously it still, I'm sure, impacted him in, in uh, as it would most people. You know, that's still his sister. I'm sure there's childhood memories they had together that, that were positive. It's probably never an easy thing to, you know, have to go through uh, when that's your family. So I remember coming home, we had a ping pong table in our house. And I remember he and I just playing several games of ping pong. And uh, I think just looking at it at the time, I think that was just kind of a way for him to spend some time with me and maybe take his mind off things a little bit, but just, uh, you know, everybody, everybody grieves differently. Everyone has, you know, their way of, of, of dealing with difficult events. And so uh, I think that was maybe at the time, in my mind, at least just maybe what his outlet was to, to just kind of cherish his time with, with me, um, but also maybe kind of just relieve some stress because I'm sure getting that phone call, regardless of how close you are or not, is a stressful phone call and no one wants to get that kind of a phone call. And I do remember uh, we had a graveside service for her here. Uh, she's buried at Siloam Cemetery off of Branson Highway. I do remember uh, having some a memory of, of my grandmother becoming very emotional at the funeral when it was ended with uh, some people who were in attendance there and, and just breaking down at one point. And that, that image stuck into my mind and I can, um, you know, remember that to this day. So that's, that's what I remember in that time. So again, that's, you know, something that, that is impactful for, for anyone who's affected by something like this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I remember, yeah, we had, we, you and I just met up uh, back on Friday and you sharing the story with me and yeah, I mean, and there's a lot of things in my, in my childhood that'll, that sticks to my head to this day. And uh, like for instance, uh, when my aunt passed away in 2004, I remember I got checked out of school and I'm thinking, oh yeah, so I'm getting checked out, you know, it's going to be a good day. And then to hear that your aunt has passed away, it's, um, yeah, not good. Uh, and she was, she was close and, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like that really, uh, stick in your mind, especially when you're a kid, it, it impacts you. I had actually just remembered this incident from many years ago, uh, as I was I was driving home from visiting my family earlier today, is that I remember one night, my mom getting a phone call, I remember it being dark and walking into my parents room while she's on the phone. And it had turned out that a relative had had been killed in a domestic um, abuse situation. And this was someone I had never met. I don't even I to this day, I still don't even know her name. It's kind of a it's kind of an odd situation that just sort of just appeared in my memory all of a sudden. And it's very kind of a strange feeling that I never I never dug deeper. I never wanted to, I guess I never had the idea to, to find out more. I don't know if my mom had known her either. It was, uh, it was on her side of the family in Minnesota somewhere, but, right. uh, but yeah, I guess that that's just something. So you and Steve share that story. Then. I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, not, you know, having that, you know, fit a personal connection with the victim, but it's still, sometimes it, it hits you, even though you might not think about it every day. Mm-hmm. Well, and I remember, you know, 
at the time being more concerned. You know, I didn't know her personally, so I can't mm -hmm. say that there was that reaction of loss to me. But I remember being, you know, more so concerned for my dad and my grandmother and yeah. as a kid wanting them to be okay. And, and you know, as a parent now, I also, it's kind of important important to look back on some of some of my childhood you know to to think you know kids pick up on a lot and I was at the time how old my daughter is today and uh, she's you know you, you can't get much buyers <laughs> so you know <laughs> sure. and, and obviously a, a child if if there was something that happened to me that affected me emotionally she would definitely pick up on that She's at an age to do that. So I remember at the time, you know, being concerned in, in whatever way I did at the time, you know, was, you know, felt bad for my father and, and my grandmother having to go through that because although I didn't know my aunt personally, you know, they did. And right. even though the relationship may not have been uh, extremely close at the time, you know, that's, that's still a sister and a daughter and, and you know, that's got to be uh, very, very difficult. Sure. I mean, and especially when you really put into the fact how Cheryl died, you know, or mm -hmm. uh, apparently how she died, you know, and that's, that's gotta be tough. I mean, sure. to, to know that your relative was a possible victim of sexual assault and murder. I mean, it, it's even tougher when you do have someone who is a survivor of sexual assault that lingers with them forever. And that also has a long lasting impact on family members. And so that has to be tough when you find stuff out like that. And, and I'm sure, you know, even today, it's still probably not easy for your dad to talk about Cheryl. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I, I'm, I'm only assuming though. Yeah. And, and, you know, he doesn't dwell on, on things like that. It sure. seems, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I know it's, it's something that, that affected him yeah. and just, just because, and it's not because, and it's not because he's ever told me that, but it's because, you know, it would affect anyone. And, oh, and sure. if I put myself in, in his shoes or, or looked at it uh, that way, you know, I know to whatever degree, you know, it, it it's affected him at, at some, at some level. And uh, it's, it's certainly, uh, he's been able to move move on and and have a productive life, but mm -hmm. uh, and and been been a great father and grandfather and all that. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not something he probably thinks about to the level of dwelling on it every day yeah. and not being able to function. But you know, it has to impact him. It would anyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and right after all this happened, you know, they were pretty quick to start working on this case, the Highlands County Sheriff's Office. So let's just put it this way, right as soon as the shit hit the fan, they started moving. So, um, you know, so when investigators did start speaking to witnesses and family members, as we just mentioned here a minute ago, you know, it was revealed that she did suffer from mental health issues, which, you know, had existed since she was a child. And I remember when we spoke with Lieutenant Kramer, he had mentioned that a neighbor had also mentioned that Cheryl had been suffering from paranoia, you know, feeling as though someone was out to get her and she'd lock her doors and she seemed to have these weird premonitions about her own death, which I would assume tied into that paranoia. Another neighbor had stated that around Christmas of 1995, there had been a dark colored Chevy Camaro parked at her home which was unusual since she didn't really have many friends or family members come to visit her. 
And she did not drive as she had no driver's license. And uh, so, and as we were also talking about a minute ago, she was also hitchhiking wherever she wanted to go and, you know, express to people that, you know, if someone picked me up, I'm going to fake an epilepsy seizure. I'm going to fake a heart attack and I'll just be able to slip away that way. And then this neighbor had also stated that the tag on the vehicle was described as blue and white, which is similar to a Michigan, a Michigan tag, but also back in 1995, 96, uh, and this is from my personal uh, recollection, it can be noted that Kentucky also had similar license plates. So uh, they were also blue and white to signify, you know, the University of Kentucky that was their colors and bluegrass and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like, I mean, so potentially this individual that was driving this Camaro was possibly from Michigan or Kentucky. And early in the investigation, attention had turned toward a Hispanic migrant who was working in Highlands County at the time of her death. Someone that he was living with had mentioned something about being with someone who had killed a woman around Christmas and dumped her body on Scrub Pens Road. The person living with him had stated to the Highlands County Sheriff's Office detectives that she had told her father this, who apparently reported this uh, story, that she had heard the man say this at the local bar, but she told detectives that she dismissed it as innocent bar talk. And it is also known that when this had been discussed, the newspaper had already published a story on the case. So this kind of almost shoots the credibility of the story, but investigators saw this as a pretty credible lead, despite the fact that this case had hit the newspapers. Because one, when this case was brought up to the woman, she didn't really want to say much other than, oh, yeah, well, I heard the story in a bar, but I think it's bar talking. And she didn't want to cooperate with anybody after that. And then on top of that, you know, these investigators are trying hard to locate this guy. And when they do, he's living in Frostproof, Florida. They go to Frostproof, but they couldn't find him there, even though there was like a record of him living there at the time. And he had been arrested on two different names as well. So he had aliases and he had fingerprints on file. And here is the kicker to this, too. Uh, apparently, he was associated with a dark colored Chevy Camaro. So that really that really makes things interesting when you look at this perspective, like. Was this really bar talk? Like, do you, I mean, what, what are you thinking here, Steve? Well, it's, it's certainly something that does pique your interest. And from an investigative side, I would say would be a lead that I would certainly want to follow and find the, uh, get to the bottom of. Again, going back to the integrity of investigations, you do have to also consider objectively, is this somebody who's drinking and running their mouth? Because for whatever reason, like I said, people... People do that sometimes when they're intoxicated or, uh, and were those details published in the newspaper? Uh, I'm sure if, if that story was in the newspaper, the, the location the body was found was probably in there as well. That's pretty standard in, in a newspaper article for something like that. So could it be, yeah, the Camaro aspect is, is interesting as well. You know, could it be a coincidence? Uh, could it be that uh, there was another connection with with that person and, and that car that, that Cheryl had with them. And maybe it wasn't homicide connection, but maybe she did know them to some extent. And maybe there was some degree of bar talk that mm -hmm. that took place for whatever reason after that. Um, so maybe there was a connection with them. 
Right. Uh, was it to the degree of being involved in, in her murder uh, or was it an acquaintance or was it anything at all? And, and I don't know yeah. that we'll know the answer to that. Um, yeah. Because my understanding is they're having a hard time even even knowing where this person is now to, right. to interview them. Yeah. yeah. And this uh, this reminds me of uh, I, I saw an episode of uh, of Unusual Suspects last night when I was going through a typical uh, episode of insomnia. Um, but I remember there was a, a guy who had bragged about I believe he was murdering bragged about murdering um, sex workers in the Washington area. And they found some consistencies with him as a person. I believe he was I believe he was a pimp is what was explained in the episode. And there were some things that were consistent with him in terms of the, the the victim and some evidence potentially. But once they took his DNA, you know, they they were able to rule him out. And he eventually just said, well, I, I, did, I said what I said. So, you know, mm-hmm. I would be able to be perceived as a threat, get what I want, essentially. And that, yeah. and with, with this, you know, individual with uh, the Chevy Camaro um, having a criminal history that, that almost seems like a possibility to me as well. Right. And then also too, if I remember right, and we'll kind of explain this a little bit toward the end, you know, there is DNA evidence out there. So it's very important that, you know, HCSO locates this guy. So that mm-hmm. way they can do a swab because if I remember right, there's only just enough to do a, a buccal swab a direct comparison. So, I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's pretty important for this guy mm-hmm. to be located and I and talking to Lieutenant Kramer, he believes that the individual may have had issues with law enforcement uh, and was fearful of being deported back to Mexico or, mm-hmm. well, he, he may have pertinent information regarding Cheryl's case. And he definitely would like to speak to this guy. I mean, even now in 2022, I mean, even just a little bit of information from this guy would be great. I mean, mm-hmm. you really can't leave no stone unturned, uh, which also kind of segues into our next discussion on this case Uh, because honestly when uh lieutenant kramer name dropped this guy i'm like holy crap really like wow (laughs) but uh, so let me explain uh sometime later a new tip came into the highlands county sheriff's office it was about 1998 or 1999 i'm not really remembering what year it was but they were informed that a serial killer by the name of Russell Elwood had been in the area at the time of Cheryl's death working as a laborer. Elwood had been sentenced to life for the murder of, well, ironically, Cheryl Lewis, who was 30 years old when she was found in Honville, Louisiana in 1993. Elwood had gained a reputation for being a serial killer in Louisiana, targeting mainly transgendered sex workers. He was also accused of possibly being the mysterious voice that called into the Howard Stern show in August of 1997, months before he would be arrested. He had identified himself as Clay and proceeded to share graphic details of numerous murders he had committed throughout Louisiana, specifically near New Orleans. The FBI would actually later comment that Stern had done a great job of keeping Clay on the phone and that Stern had also maintained a good line of questioning which would help investigators profile the serial killer, also known as the Storyville killer, which they believe to some extent, Clay, Russell Elwood, 
and the Storyville killer may be one and the same. So when you really think about that, they're, they're saying that Russell's body count was over 20 women and transgendered uh, individuals who fell victim to him in Louisiana. Is it really, I don't know, is it really interesting to say that perhaps he didn't necessarily stop in Louisiana, that he went to other states and committed these murders? Because, I mean, we look at Larry Eiler. He was killing through Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Kentucky. And then on top of that, Ted Bundy. He had a mm-hmm. long body body count from Washington to right here in Lake City, Florida. And then also, um, you know, uh, Samuel Little. I mean, mm-hmm. you can compare a lot of this. A lot of people say, well, serial killers like to stay local, like Gacy or Dahmer, but that's not always the case. So, Steve, I have to hear your thoughts on this uh, in regards to the Elwood lead, because I know that was for me, that was actually a bit of a shocking lead. And I'm nowhere near close to this case, you know, like like you are. <laughs> so, sure. Well, uh what what kind of piqued my interest and Jason, you can correct me if I'm wrong because uh, my memory might be a little fuzzy on 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 these details. But I think what piqued my interest with him and perhaps his involvement, one going back to you know the the guy in the bar making those comments. I don't know why people do it, but I do know that people people lie about stuff like that sometimes for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So it just didn't seem like, um, you know, there, there was too much there and maybe it was just my gut. You know, it's probably the, the, the best, the best thing I could say is just my gut. My initial impression did not seem to think that that was, um, you know, the most credible, Again, that could very well be, but I want to say when Elwood was brought into this as a suspect, uh, there may have been some similarities in terms of how his victims were found, the the condition of their bodies as far as, uh, I want to say the socks, even the location of the socks was something that was a similar thing being located near where some of his victims had bodies had been discovered that could be tied to him. The other thing I found interesting about him is one of the things that stood out to me. I want to say, I don't know if it was the uh, landfill, but you said he was a laborer. I want to say he was working in the area where her body was found. So if he wasn't from here, he probably was going to go in a in a place where he was familiar. Sure. And and with mm-hmm. about as you know, if you're going to dump a body somewhere, you're you're going to obviously try to do it in a remote location if your intent is for it to not be discovered for some time. You know, you're going to go to a place that you're familiar with, especially if you're not from a location you you might try to find the most remote location that you know of. So if he worked in the area and that was a remote location, it -hmm. seems to me if I'm putting myself in the mind of someone like that, that he's going to go to uh, a familiar place for him. And if if he's uh, a serial killer, my, my impression is that when you start looking at, psychology of a serial killer and and people like that they can't shut that off he may have he may have done 
several in Louisiana if he if he was from there or if he spent more time there. But just because he may have been in Florida for a short stint doesn't mean that he was able to shut that switch off in his brain that right. that you know gave him the urge to to kill. And so to me, you know, my my initial impression and gut reaction is is kind of like looks like a duck walks like a duck you know (laughs) that's that's my impression yeah Um, and the the circumstances of you know him knowing the area and being in the area is is a really big detail i think that's i know that's why um i believe there are some missing persons cases now they're being tied to uh Robert Durst, who uh, recently died after he was convicted for um, a friend's murder and is strongly suspected in that of his wife's. I believe also with uh, Terry Rasmussen as well. There mm-hmm. are several missing people, you know, outside of Denise Bowden, who hasn't been recovered yet, but that it, they were known to spend time in this certain area and sometimes in, within a block or at least, you know, close to pro- close proximity that it, it's a very strong possibility that they're, they could have run into each other. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it makes you wonder just how many victims they could have had. Yeah. Like, I mean, Elwood from what it appears had knowledge of this general area and yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, he, he, I think if I remember right, he lived there for about six months before he went back to Louisiana. And what I understand was he drove taxi cabs. So, like, he was always in communication with people. He, he was driving people around. I mean, well, I bet you a majority of the people didn't realize they were being driven around by a serial mm-hmm. killer in New Orleans. So, it's like, there's so much stuff going on here. And really, when you get the bigger picture of Russell Elwood, yeah, like Nick was saying, you really don't know like what their true body count is. I mean, mm-hmm. there's probably still cases that law enforcement has not tied to him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's interesting. Well, I mean, and, and you look at Ted Bundy, you know, there there are cases to this day that, that probably never got pinned on him that he he was probably responsible for. So, oh, yeah. you know, that's mm-hmm. the nature of, of serial killers a lot of times is that a lot of times you're you're not going to be able to even if you suspect you may not be able to tie every single one right. to them but again it, it seems like a mighty big coincidence that um he's here for a short period of time and and cheryl is killed in that time frame in a manner that is similar to how his other victims' bodies were discovered and right. uh, in a location that that he's familiar with. And and if you think about this, too, about Russell Elwood, he also did not rape his victims. He strangled them. So it's like, holy crap. Like, I mean, and there was no evidence Cheryl had been sexually assaulted. Nick? And uh, one thing I do want to say, too, is that a lot of times when the cause of death is strangulation, the damaged part of the neck is what decomposes first. And that's the case with several other points of injury, which can leave no evidence whatsoever on what remains are left, depending on if it's skeletonized or, or decomposed tissue. It's, uh, um, it's definitely something that 
is a strong possibility. And I know a lot of cases where they know this individual was murdered, but you know, there's no evidence of being stabbed, this or that. The cause of death is sometimes even ruled as um, strangulation or asphyxiation. Yeah, well, and I was going to bring up asphyxiation as well, because I know with strangulation, a lot of times they're looking to see if that high old hyoid mm-hmm. bone in the neck has been damaged yeah. at all. Um, because you can sometimes tell that post-mortem if, if, if it's available, Mm -hmm. uh, however, with, with another form of asphyxiation, you may not be able to tell that post-mortem, uh, decomposition type of situation. So Mm -hmm. it it really, that that's one of the kind of going back as far as causes of death and things like that. That's one of the things that now looking at it through through my lens and, and law enforcement, um, I kind of wonder about asphyxiation as a cause of death because a medical examiner is going to be able to determine if there's blunt force trauma, even post-mortem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're going to have the skeleton, the, the bones and, and things like that, even for a decomposition, but they're not going to be able to determine something uh, as easily like an asphyxiation. So, um if those organs are damaged, if if it, if it's a drowning and, and things like that, mm-hmm. and the body is past the point where where the lungs are, are decomposing and damaged, uh, you may not be able to determine some of that stuff. So, mm-hmm. asphyxiation or something like that is, is something that I had mm-hmm. uh, kind of wondered as well in terms of cause of death, because mm-hmm. again, you could have some soft tissue damage that might yeah. be destroyed in the natural state of decomposition but at the same time some of that stuff would would still be able to uh, probably lead to other injuries mm-hmm. being noticed that that apparently were not here so yeah and i i think somewhere i don't remember what program it was that i watched or maybe it was something i had read but i think too that i'd i'd read or or been exposed to some something that said that like manual strangulation uh, sometimes or quite often doesn't damage the hyoid um, just depending on kind of like like a pillow over the face or something like well, that. that. Well, yeah, like I mean, like I guess that's what I like a pillow over the face is what I think of for asphyxiation or or you know like a, a hand over the mouth and nose. That's that's what I think of when I when I think of uh, asphyxiation. But and I don't know the I don't know the uh, circumstances at the time, mm-hmm. obviously. But uh, these are different things I I kind of think about as well. Yeah if she was in a ditch, was there water in the ditch, you know, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and with, was the state of decomposition so advanced that it was mainly a skeleton and the organs are not intact to determine if there was water in the lungs. Um, you know, it is Florida. So that's, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the rainy season, but it does still rain in December and January. So. And I know this is unpleasant to talk about, too, because and we kind of touched up on it with Laura Zen. But, uh, you know, even around that time, there could have been possibility of atmosphere. So, you know, that and that's, you know, as gruesome as it gets. So and 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 the other the other uh, thing, though, that I kind of go back and forth with is, you know, was she killed at that location? She could have been. Uh, there's just really no way to know. But. Yeah. Obviously, the 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 clothing for her lower half was was never located. So, right. I, I go back to that there could have been one of uh, two scenarios in my mind: is that she was killed at a different location and and mm-hmm. uh, discarded there, or 
uh, she could have been taken to that location in that condition and and possibly killed there. But I have many more scenarios to speculate mm-hmm. on other than sure. those two. Yeah. Sure. I, I feel like, too, with the fact that her socks were found at the scene, basically in, indicating that she was probably wearing them around or during the, the time she died, makes me think, too, that she was she might have been indoors where she had her shoes off like at a at a private re- residence even or dragged i mean, yeah, dragged I mean that, that's a very was, strong possibility you know, too as she was being dragged the, yeah. the stock slipped off yeah that's very possible as well yeah and, and i mean i'm not a detective i i don't pretend to be one <laughs> you know yeah. i don't and i'm just, i mean yeah you know what we're, we're you know we're just a couple of true crime nerds but also too i do you know a lot of journalism and research into this stuff to the point where i bought a 200 dollars book about you know homicide investigations by vernon geberth so who's like one of the top like legends in you know cold case detective work so you know but the thing is is that you know even i'm not i'm not no detective but just hearing about russell elwood's mo the way that Cheryl was found just this whole situation I can definitely see why Highlands County would definitely be focusing on Elwood in this investigation because I mean it's strong I mean you can't deny that Elwood was in town the same time she died found in this position when he's arrested years later his victims suffer just about the same fate so like you can't help but add him into this picture i mean it's it's crazy to think about it i mean especially and i'm sure steve you know when you told your father about all this i'm sure it blew his mind yeah and and that's where we haven't had many updates and so the uh new information that i was able to learn in our conversation with lieutenant kramer was kind of interesting and in, in, in terms of an update um very interesting because again you know that's just the nature of it sometimes is you don't get daily phone calls. You don't get weekly phone calls uh, saying, yeah, we, we've come across this. You know, it's, it's, it's a case that's gone cold. So a lot of times there just isn't much to update on. But those are details, again, at the time, they probably would not have shared at the time uh, in an active investigation for, for the integrity of it. But at this point now, when, when you reach a dead end, it, it does help sometimes to release additional information in hopes that uh, someone else may come forward with some information that could be helpful in, in solving the case. So it does mm-hmm. certainly, uh, to me, uh, it, it is interesting from an investigative standpoint. And, and I do think my father found that interesting as well whenever I shared yeah. that with him. Yeah. And I mean, it's, and the thing is too, when you really, really think about it too, you know, he was already considered a possible suspect early on in this investigation after, you know, the fact he'd been arrested and Highlands County finding out after the fact, you know, he had actually been questioned before about her death. And um, during this interrogation, uh, he was provided a voice stress analysis uh, test during this line of questioning. And as we would find out from Lieutenant Kramer, uh, the results were inconclusive and he denied any involvement in this case. So Steve, you're, you're trained in voice stress analysis. Uh, I remember quickly Lieutenant Kramer kind of dismissed it <laughs> in some sense, but you've been trained in it. I mean, how do you feel about voice stress analysis testing? Do you think it can be as maybe accurate as a polygraph test, which we both know 
can and cannot be, uh, may, may or may not be accurate. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I was certified in it. And whenever I was in internal affairs, uh, we used it for our background process, our background investigations for new hires. So I've done, done many of them. I've also done it for other agencies uh, and some homicide investigations uh, and some other criminal investigations as well. It can be a very accurate tool. But that's not to say that it's infallible either. I would I would stress that it is a tool. It is not a it is not some magic machine that's you know going to be completely infallible because there's a science to it. Part of the the use of that tool in terms of it being accurate is is the examiner as well. And sometimes it's interesting. You'll hear people who are CVSA examiners say that, you know, that's the most accurate machine. And of course, a polygraph examiner will probably tell you theirs is more accurate. Who really knows, right? Yeah. Um, so. I, we had some success with it. And, and, and I do think if you use it the right way and, and you as an examiner are, you know, using it as a tool and, and, and combining all of your interview techniques with that tool and not just relying on that tool, um, I think that's where you will see the most success. Um, and, and I'm not, this isn't to say that that examiner uh, who, who performed it there did anything wrong. I'm not saying that at all. I have seen where we will do a new hire interview and uh, it shows deception uh, for me asking someone what their name is, you know, and, and is your name so-and-so and, and there's no jeopardy there for that person. So mm-hmm. I've seen where some people, uh, and we have what we call control questions where we ask someone to lie so that we can see what it looks like when they lie to us. And there's some people there that are cool as a cucumber and can lie to me without any problem. And so again, like I said, that's where your strength as uh, an investigator or detective and, and an interviewer, that's, that's one part of it. Uh, that's one tool that can be used, but that's not certainly just a catch all. You have to, you have to be able to take your interview skills uh, in their totality and say, okay, is this person just nervous or is this person a good liar? <laughs> is this person, you know, trick themselves into to believing their own lie? So there, there are other things that go into that. And, and if it's done right, it's, it's a very lengthy process between a pre-interview and, and the examination itself. The examination itself is a rather quick process. So, there's a lot of other things that go into an examination when you're using that tool. Again, it's a very good tool. Uh, I've, I've known people that have had great success with it on uh, homicide cases and uh, cases overseas with uh, terrorism um, when, when polygraphs have, have not been successful and this tool has been. So uh, it, it, it can be a very great tool, but that's not to say that it's magic either. I just have a quick question too. Um, as you know, you were talking about uh, the voice stress analysis and, and comparing it to the polygraph or lie detector test. Um, just out of curiosity, um, are the results from the, the voice stress analysis, are, is that something that's admissible into court during a trial or is it like a, for similar reasons why polygraphs are, are excluded from that? Correct. It, it would be the same category. They're not admissible in court. And okay. it would be for those same reasons. Um, the thing I would note is the difference between the two. Uh, the polygraph measures 
uh, various physiological responses of the body. So that's why they hook you up to all this stuff mm -hmm. um, because it's measuring your respirations and, and, and all kinds of things like that. Whereas the CVSA, when, when you learn that uh, machine, if you can say the words yes to no, that that's pretty much it. There's nothing hooked to you. It's, it's a microphone. Mm -hmm. um, and so they say that, that it's better in the poly, than the polygraph in that aspect because whereas medications or sleep deprivation or mm -hmm. other physiological things could influence a polygraph's result, uh, those things uh, don't interfere with a verbal yes or a no. So, uh, but again, that's that's the difference in how they operate. But there is a lot more that goes into it. That's just kind of it in a nutshell, and and it can be used as a great tool. But at the same time, the interviewer and and the skills that they have are probably, in my opinion, more important than the the tool itself. Um, <laughs> But but that's not to to diminish the use of it or or its ability because mm -hmm. it, it has been very effective um, in a lot of cases and I would say it's uh, accurate more times than not. Sure. Yeah, I just know that like as somebody who has high functioning anxiety, I I just know that if I were ever asked to be hooked up to a polygraph machine, <laughs> with, I mean in a very unlikely scenario, I I feel like I would I would we refuse. might play. We might play with one in Massachusetts. Who knows? <laughs> well, again, that that's that's yeah. where, you know, like mm -hmm. I said, it, it's up to the interviewer to determine because if you just there, there was a pre-employment one I did for somebody. And if you looked at the chart, you would say, man, mm -hmm. they were just they were lying the whole time. <laughs> but you would look at the questions like, is your name so and so? And, and it's obvious they mm -hmm. weren't lying about that. But um, yeah. You know, there are people, like you said, who are more high strung and others mm -hmm. that are just more laid back and nothing gets them riled up. So mm -hmm. uh, you just kind of have to that's, again, where your where your discretion comes in as an interviewer. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and it appears with Highlands County in this case, they didn't really know what to do with this inconclusive result. So I from what it appears right after the Elwood lead there was literally no movement in this case. So they just shelved the investigation. And unfortunately that does happen. But when we sat down with Lieutenant Kramer uh, and they re he reviewed the case with us, it appears like, all right, this is something that we need to take a look at again here because like that's an inconclusive result. His MO matches up with uh, his victims. So we need to have a conversation with this guy again. So essentially, right as soon as he logged out of Skype, he re re pretty much reopened the investigation, although technically it was already open, uh, according to the state of Florida. According to the state of Florida, all open homicide cases are still open. They're just inactive. But for this one, it's opened again. It's, it's active. So uh, Highlands County did pursue this Russell Elwood lead. However, ladies and gentlemen, a roadblock was placed. So in May 2022, I get a phone call from Sergeant Roger St. Laurent, who informed me that Russell Elwood had actually died at Angola State Prison in Louisiana. For those of you who are not familiar with that prison, that's where, uh, you know, people who are sentenced to life and death are sent to. And it's not a really pleasant place to be. Uh, from what I remember, you know, watching documentaries on this prison, 
And um, yeah, so he's dead now. There's nothing really they can do at this point. You can't just dig them up and start asking them questions. But at the same time, it's like, damn, that's a big bummer because we're on a hot lead here. I was pretty excited about it. You were too, Steve. And then suddenly to hear that this fool died in prison almost 10 years ago. Like he could have been the link to Cheryl's death, but now we can't know for sure at this moment, whether or not he was. Um, And then I remember right after Sergeant St. Lawrence called, I called you and we talked about that a little bit. Uh, What were your thoughts on that? Well, it, it, in some ways it was disappointing to, to hear that that was a dead end, but at the same time, if, if he was responsible, I don't know that I would have been expecting him to confess to it either. Sure. So I don't know that we would have learned any more uh, from that. I would have, I would have to say that, that at this point, and again, I don't know what kind of DNA evidence that they may have that could be tested, but the only, the only thing I could think of would be is if he were in prison, his DNA may be on file. And so there could be something for a DNA comparison. Uh, that's about the only thing I could think of at this point yeah. since he's dead. And, and of course, they would probably have to um, you know, develop some type of legal reason to, to be able to do that and to be able to articulate uh, that. However, if, again, I don't know that the Camaro uh, thing really sticks out to me so much and and I don't know that we're ever going to identify who that was or be able to locate Mm -hmm. them to me my initial reaction was that it would have been a heck of a coincidence sure to have a serial killer in the area when this happened in an area he was familiar with where the body was found and so to me I would say my gut just tells me that that's that was the prime suspect in my mind. So there's, I would like to be able to say at some point, you know, and, and tell my dad that, yeah, this is the person that did it. And, yeah. and justice was, was brought to them. But again, when you look at Bundy and you look at some of the other serial killers, there, there are families that still don't know for sure, but I do take some type of, um, peace of mind knowing that if he did do this and he was responsible for Cheryl's death then he at least died in prison and it wasn't like he got to live out the rest of his life you know as a free person he he died where he should have and so if if there's any consolation that would be it for me uh Mm -hmm. is is to be able to say that uh in my mind he was probably suspect number one. And even though her death may not have been able to be linked to him directly, he, he got caught for someone else's and, and he died where he should have. And ironically that victim's name being Cheryl too. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that that's kind of my feeling and my sentiment on it. It is, you know, a process to, to go through and, and to try to put a picture in your mind, especially when you don't really have many firsthand memories, because at the 
time, like I said, being a, a kid, I wasn't deeply involved in this, in this process. So I'm, I'm kind of playing catch up a little bit and, and trying to figure out, um, you know, what my dad knew, what, what Highlands County officials knew, um, and, and paint a picture in my mind based on what I know and, and, and has been my experience and my professional career up to this point. So it, it is quite a process. However, I, I do take some, some degree of satisfaction, uh, at least in my own mind, knowing that this has, you know, been followed up on. And, and yes. at this point, I don't see any anything else that that i can say uh hasn't been done that should be done right i do feel very confident in the job that highlands county has done and Mm -hmm. and i would commend them uh for not giving up and and especially when when someone reaches out and says hey you know what's the status and you know that their willingness to take a look at it again and say yeah we, we can do a few more things and 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 let's do that so I would commend them as well. In the meantime, I'll be completely honest with you. And this is just my opinion, my opinion only. I mean, just based on a lot of the information that we've gathered, just talking about Cheryl's case tonight, I am pretty confident that when it does happen, when things do come out and this case is solved, Russell Elwood will be the killer in this case. I'm, I'm just by what I'm hearing here. I mean, that's just yeah. a, you know, that's just sleuth, sleuth thoughts. Yeah. I but, share that. Yeah. And I, I share that opinion myself too, mm-hmm. but yeah, you can't convict somebody uh, very easily, especially today on just circumstantial information. Right. No matter how strong it is, like, like it is in this case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just glad at least there's DNA in this case, even though mm-hmm. it's not suitable it's still something and DNA technology is changing rapidly in this world of criminal justice and crime fighting. I mean, Elliot Ness would like have a heart attack over this if he was still alive today. So like I'm very positive about Cheryl's case and the outcome. And I still think about this case and, you know, uh, Sergeant St. Laurent and Lieutenant Kramer have invited Stephen and I to go down to Highlands County and sit with them and go through the files and the photos and stuff like that. So, and one day we're going to take them up on that. So, yeah. And that might even clear up, I guess, some, you know, questions on the, the state of the body upon discovery as to correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that too, mm-hmm. because um, you know, it, it's one thing to hear about it. It's another to look at it. And um, that's yeah. um, and that that'll definitely answer some questions there, but pretty much, I mean, that's pretty much as far as we get in Cheryl's case. I mean, to go from a small blurb on the Highland County Sheriff's office to a nearly two hour episode, like I didn't expect it to run this long, yeah. <laughs> but it has. And I think now we've been able to provide the world on who Cheryl Catchigan was and what happened to her. And, you know, and you're hearing from her, her nephew sitting with us and, uh, Steve, do you have any thoughts you wanted to share how, you know, anything you wanted to kind of share with us that we didn't get an opportunity to touch up on? Well, I think, um, this is, has been a very thorough, uh, conversation. Um, if I had any parting words or parting thoughts, I guess it would just be from the standpoint of, of a personal touch with 
from someone uh, who who is in the law enforcement profession, but also um, just from a human standpoint, is I think it's important for all of us to understand. And, you know, Jason, we talked about the other day in, in law enforcement, you spend any amount of time in there. Sometimes you, you get jaded with certain things or you have, you have a different worldview just because of the things you're exposed to. But I think it's important as a reminder uh, for all of us to understand with these cold cases, you know, we can sit here and put blame on victims at the end of the day, they're still a victim and they're deserve, exactly. they deserve justice. And, uh, they have families that, that care about them. And, and, and I feel like you know, doing what I do maybe is, is the reason why, um, you know, I feel, you know, compelled in, in this situation, but I feel like, you know, it, it is our, obligation in a sense to to seek justice for these folks and and their families and uh again you don't have to know them personally you don't have to have a personal connection with somebody to to try to uh bring some closure to a family uh and and to really bring justice for a victim and then to at least say you know this is who that was because um my mom uh, is is very reminding of the fact that but for the grace of god there go i you know and we can sit here and be judgmental uh and say well this person should have done this in their life or not done this but you know uh no one's perfect and but for the grace of god we could be in that situation too so mm-hmm. uh i think it's what we choose to do with with what we have and and i hope that more people would choose to do good with what they have absolutely i you 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 said it perfectly <laughs> yeah uh, nick any thoughts um all i have to say is that i'm really grateful that we were able to really expand on this case and put forth a whole lot of information that is not immediately accessible on a quick Google search. I know you used archives and, uh, you know, case file records and that sort of uh, thing, but it's, it's just a good feeling to at least be able to tell the story of this victim where there's, there's so little information about her. And also, you know, this is my very first uh, session with the family, with a family member of the victim. You know, this is a, it's a very, it was a very interesting conversation and it's it's great that we were able to do this just because of how many cases we've considered doing for potential episodes that have just fallen through the cracks because there simply was not enough information even if we searched through newspapers.com archives that require subscriptions um and you know thankfully in other cases we've gotten uh interviews from sources that could provide us with intimate details, you know, such as this, or as in with the uh, few other episodes that we've done. Um, I'm just glad that we were able to at least get this seemingly unknown, nondescript paragraph coming from this, uh, this law enforcement website expanded into a, into a podcast episode, which a lot of, a lot of cases probably will never uh, see. Yeah. And, and that's the unfortunate part about these cold cases, you know, where there's not a lot of information, but mm-hmm. The thing is, if, is if podcasters would just do their job, I'm not trying to throw any blame or shade here, 
But if podcasters and journalists would just do their jobs and actually dig deep enough, there's a story inside that. I mean, there's there's podcasters out there who are just too shy to just reach out to a detective or they might Facebook a family member, see that they do have Facebook, but they're just too scared to send a message out. Dig, 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 especially if you want to do something in this you know, field. That's why we're investigative journalists. That's why we dig into these cases. So people like Cheryl can have her story told. And when her story's told and justice is served, at least we can say we were a part of that, that somehow, some way, this narrative helped open the door for the case to be solved. Or at least gave it exposure, if that, you know. Exactly. And, and that's good enough for me, honestly. <laughs> and I agree. You know, and that was, the, that was the sole purpose of Unidentified Wiki at the beginning, too, when yes. I created it, was just to get stories out there. And Absolutely. And you've now got millions of people following you on that page. And I, I, I don't will... know about millions, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I will tell you this, though. Uh, when this episode drops, we will be inching closer to 100,000 downloads. Thanks to our followers from around the world. I mean, we've got a good fan base down in Australia, New Zealand area, um, and also throughout the United States, especially where this podcast originated from in Oregon and Utah. So, I mean, we've got a great listenership and every one of those people who follow this case, just like the Harry Moore episode last time are now going to know the story of Cheryl Katchigan. And Steve, we appreciate you coming on and talking about Cheryl's case. And uh, please let your father know that we appreciate him for contributing to the story as well. Sure. Well, thanks for having us. Absolutely. And if you have any information on Cheryl Katchigan's death, you are urged to contact the Highlands County Sheriff's Office at 863 402 72,000 and reach out to Sergeant Roger St. Laurent or Lieutenant Brian Kramer. They will be happy to speak with you on any leads or tips that you may have on Cheryl's death. If you would like to leave an anonymous tip and be eligible for a cash reward, please call Heartland Crime Stoppers at 1-800-226-TIPS. That's 1-800-226-8447 or visit www.heartlandcrimestoppers.com. Com. We appreciate you all joining us on this episode of From the Vault. Uh, on behalf of Nick uh, and Steve, this is Jason Futch. We want to thank you all for joining us. And if you like this episode, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review and your thoughts on today's episode. With that being said, thank you all for joining us, and we will see you on the next episode of From the Vault. From the Vault, a true crime podcast, is a JPF production. This episode was written, edited, and directed by Jason Futch. The information used for this episode was provided to us by Stephen Katchigan, with case information provided to us by Roger St. Laurent and Brian Kramer of the Highlands County Sheriff's Office. Our opening theme is Sinister by Anno Domini Beats, and our closing theme is Sinister Cathedral by Asher Fulero. If you have questions concerning this episode or general questions, please reach out to us at jpfproductionslead at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode.